Chapter 8 of The Four Pools Mystery. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Four Pools Mystery by Jean Webster. Chapter 8 The Robbery Remains a Mystery. So we got rid of the detective, but matters did not readily settle down again into their old relations. The colonel was irritable, and Rad was moody and sullen. He showed no tendency to confide in me as to the truth about the hand, and I did not probe the matter further. In a day or so he brought me three hundred dollars to cover the amount I had loaned him, together with the blackmail as he insisted upon calling it. The money, he informed me, was from the proceeds of the bonds he had sold. He showed me at the same time several letters from his brokers, establishing beyond a doubt that the story he had told was true. As to the stolen bonds, their whereabouts was as much a mystery as ever, and Rad appeared to take not the slightest interest in the matter. Since the detective had been summoned, he had washed his hands of all responsibility. I think it was the morning after Clancy's departure that Solomon handed me a pale blue envelope, bearing in the upper left-hand corner the device of the post-dispatch. I laughed as I ripped it open. I had almost forgotten Terry's existence. It contained a characteristic pencil scrawl slanting across a sheet of yellow paper. Arnold Crosby, Esquire, Turnips Farm, Pumpkin Corners, VA. Dear Sir, Enclosed please find clipping. Are the facts straight and have the missing bonds turned up? If not, don't you want me to run down and find them for you? Should like to meet an authenticated ghost. Wouldn't be a bad Sunday feature article. Give it my love. Is it a man or lady? Things are also moving nicely in New York. Two murders and a child abducted in one week. How are crops? Yours truly, T.P. Wire me if you want me. The clipping was headed, Spook Crack Safe, and was a fairly accurate account of the hand and the robbery. It ended with the remark that the mystery was as yet unsolved but that the best detective talent in the country had been engaged on the case. I tossed the letter to Radnor with a laugh. He had already heard of Terry's connection with the Patterson-Pratt affair. Perhaps we couldn't do better than to get him down, I suggested. He's most abnormally keen at ferreting out a mystery that promises any news. If anyone can learn the truth about those bonds, he can. I don't want to know the truth, Radnor growled. I'm sick of the very name of Bonds. And this had been his attitude from the moment the detective left. My own insistence that it was our duty to track down the thief met with nothing but a shrug. Another person might have suspected that this apathy only proved his own culpability in the theft, but such a suspicion never for a moment crossed my mind. He was, as he said, sick of the very name of Bonds, 
and with a person of his temperament that ended the matter. Though I did not comprehend his attitude, still I took him at his word. There was something about Rad's straightforward way of looking one in the eye that impelled belief. As I had heard the colonel boast, a gaylord could not tell a lie. The things a gaylord could and could not do were, I acknowledge, to a northern ethical sense, a trifle mystifying. A gaylord might drink and gamble and fail to pay his debts, not his gambling debts, his tailor and his grocer. He might be the hero of many doubtful affairs with women. He might, in a sudden fit of passion, commit a murder. There was more than one killing in the family annals, but under no circumstances would his honour permit him to tell a lie. The reservation struck me somewhat humorously as an anticlimax, but nevertheless I believed it. When Rad said he knew nothing of the stolen bonds, I dismissed the possibility from my mind. Though I was relieved to feel that he was not guilty, still I was worried and nervous over the matter. I felt that it was criminal not to do something, and yet my hands were tied. I could scarcely undertake an investigation myself, for every clue led across the trail of the hand, and that, Rad made it clear, was forbidden ground. The colonel, meanwhile, was comparatively quiet, as he supposed the detective was still working on the case. I accordingly did nothing, but I kept my eyes open, hoping that something would turn up. Rad's temper was absolutely unbearable for the first week after the detective left. The reason had nothing to do with the stolen bonds, but was concerned entirely with Polly Mather's behaviour. She barely noticed Rad's existence, so occupied was she with the ecstatic young sheriff. What the trouble was I did not know, but I suspected that it was the whispered conjectures in regard to the hand. I remember one evening in particular that she snubbed him in the face of the entire neighbourhood. We had arrived at a party a trifle late to find Polly, as usual, the centre of a laughing group of young men, all clamouring for dances. They widened their circle to admit Rad in a way which tacitly acknowledged his prior claim. He inquired with his most deferential bow what dances she had saved for him. Polly replied in an off-handed manner that she was sorry but her card was already full. Rad shrugged nonchalantly, and sauntering toward the door, disappeared for the rest of the night. When he turned up at Four Pools early in the morning, his horse, Uncle Jake informed me, looked as if it had been ridden by the devil himself. With Radnor in this state, and the colonel growing daily more irritable over the continued mystery of the bonds, it is not strange that matters between them were at a high state of tension. As I saw more of the colonel's treatment of Rad, I came to realise that there was considerable excuse for Jefferson's wildness. While he was a kind man at heart, still he had an ungovernable temper, 
and an absolutely tyrannical desire to rule every one about him. His was the only free will allowed on the place. He attempted to treat Rad at twenty-two, much as he had done at twelve. A few months before my arrival, I heard this later, he had even struck him, whereupon Radnor had turned on his heel and walked out of the house, and had only consented to come back two weeks later when he heard that the old man was ill. If two men ever needed a woman to manage them, these were the two. I think that if my aunt had lived, most of the trouble would have been avoided. Rad was not the only one, however, who felt the colonel's irritation over the robbery. His treatment of the servants was harsh and even cruel. Everybody on the place went about in a half-cowed fashion. He treated Mose like a dog. Why the fellow stood it, I don't know. The colonel seemed never to have learned that the old slave days were over, and that he no longer owned the negro's body and soul. His government of the plantation was in the manner of a despot. Everybody, from his own son to the merest piccaninny, was at the mercy of his caprice. When he was in good humour, he was kindness itself to the darkies. When he was in bad humour, he vented his anger on whoever happened to be nearest. I shall never forget the feeling of indignation with which I first saw him strike a man. A strange negro was caught one morning in the neighbourhood of the chicken coop, and was brought up to the house by two of the stable men. My uncle, who was standing on the portico steps waiting for his horse, was in a particular savage mood, as he had just come from an altercation with Radnor. The man said that he was hungry and asked for work, but the colonel, almost without waiting to hear him speak, fell upon him in a fit of blind rage, slashing him half a dozen times over the head and shoulders with his heavy riding crop. The negro, who was a powerful built fellow, instead of standing up and defending himself like a man, crouched on the ground with his arms over his head. "'Please, Colonel Gaylord,' he whimpered, "'let me go. I ain't done nothing. I ain't steal no chickens. For God's sake, don't whip me. I sprung forward with an angry exclamation and grasped my uncle's arm. The fellow was on his feet instantly and off down the lane without once glancing back. The colonel stood a moment looking from my indignant face to the man disappearing in the distance and burst out laughing. I reckon I won't be troubled with him any more, he remarked as he mounted and rode away his good humour apparently quite restored. I confess that it took me some time to get over that scene, but the worst of it was that he treated his own servants in the same summary fashion. The thing that puzzled me most was the way in which they received it. Mose, being always at hand, was cuffed about more than any negro on the place, but as far as I could make out, it only seemed to increase his love and veneration for the colonel. I don't believe the situation could ever be intelligible to a northern man. 
So matters stood when I had been a month at Four Pools. My vacation had lasted long enough, but I was supremely comfortable and very loath to go. The first few weeks of May had been, to my starved city eyes, a dazzling pageant of beauty. The landscape glowed with yellow daffodils, pink peach blossoms, and the bright green of new wheat. The fields were alive with the frisky joyousness of spring lambs and colts, turned out to pasture. It was with a keen feeling of reluctance that I faced the prospect of New York's brick and stone and asphalt. My work was calling, but I lazily postponed my departure from day to day. Things at the plantation seemed to have settled into their old routine. The whereabouts of the bonds was still a mystery, but the had had returned to his grave at least in so far as many manifestations affected the house. I believed that the spirit of the spring hole had been seen rising once or twice from a cloud of sulphurous smoke, but the excitement was confined strictly to the negro quarters. No man on the place who valued a whole skin would have dared mention the word had in Colonel Gaylord's presence. Relations between Rad and his father were rather less strained, and matters on the whole were going pleasantly enough, when there suddenly fell from a clear sky the strange and terrible series of events which changed everything at Four Pools. End of Chapter 8